Hey, today on the show, we've got actor Reed Diamond, and he's acted in a ton of great stuff, including Moneyball, 24, Wayward Pines, Billions, and tons more. And he's going to be talking about growing up in New York in the 70s and the culture back then, uh, not only with the uh, film and TV and theater, but also music. And then he's got lots of great stories uh, about working with Brad Pitt, George Clooney, and Malcolm McDowell, plus some uh, exciting stuff he's got coming out soon, including the new show about Watergate called Gaslit with Sean Penn and Julia Roberts, and so much more. So don't go anywhere. You're the professional. That's no, <laughs> that's what I always, it's so right. funny because I interview all these musicians and stuff and I'm always asking about lighting. I'm like, don't you guys have to, you're on stage. Don't you have to know the lighting and all that? Like I just play guitar. They, somebody else does that. Exactly. Is that how you are too with like, do you just go and act and somebody else does the lighting and tells you where to stand and the blocking and all that? Well, you know, there are paid professionals who do all that, but I've definitely, you definitely learn it as an actor. You get, especially as you get become an older actor, you definitely learn your lighting. And, uh, and nowadays, you know, because we got to do every, all this stuff from home, um, everyone's got to build their own little movie studios in their houses. So I've got, you know, grand worth of just lighting in the house. Oh, really? Yeah. So you just, and that's just from your experience on being on set and stuff, or did you have somebody come over and help you set it up or, you know, we live in, it's, it's 2022. I've got this magical thing called the interweb, right. And I can just look it up on YouTube. Right. So I'm learning about like three point lighting, but no, because it started before COVID, right. We started having to do a lot more. Um, if you had to audition or meet or anything like that, you had to do it yourself. Um, and then since lockdown now it's only that way. I don't know that it'll ever, go back to going into rooms the way we used to always go into rooms. So uh, really, but don't you lose something with that, with being in? Yeah, you lose a lot. You lose so much because um, I find, you know, when you're auditioning personally, this is, I think that most of it happens just when you walk through that door, it's like sort of that exchange of energy between you and them. And if, if you dig them, if they dig you and they can get a sense of you. So that's the hardest part right now about, I think is that they're seeing your performance. They're seeing whatever the character is that you're going to do for them, but they don't really get a sense of per se, unless they know you, who you are. That's interesting. You say that about the energy. Cause I was going to ask you about that. Like, is that kind of when you learned that you wanted to go into acting and it, like, cause I know your dad worked at a TV station or something. So like right. when you ever go to his set and just like, feel like energized, like, yes, this is, this feels right. Well, that's so funny because it's great to bring up my dad. Cause my dad, my dad worked at channel nine. He worked at WOR. Where are you right now, Chuck? Where are I'm you? in Scottsdale, Arizona. Oh, cool. Yeah. So this was in New York city. So he, uh, it was a local TV station in New York, but they were still, it's so funny how much, how quickly things have changed recently, but they were still in the seventies and the eighties. It would be recognizable to like a 1950s, 1960s television studio. So what they did, it was, they only had one, they only had one stage, one studio. So all the sets were arrayed around the wall. So you'd have the news, you'd have romper room, you'd have the Joe Franklin show set. You'd even had before they moved to uh, an actual bowling alley, they'd made a bowling alley for the game show bowling for dollars. And all you would do, just like how they did back in live TV days, they just moved the camera around to each set and then light that set. I mean, it was pretty, it was really, yeah, it was in a magical place. Um, I mean, because I spent a lot of time at my dad's work. My dad was, there were two directors there at the station who directed all of the shows. 
So um, I kind of had free run of the place and it was sort of a magical world to live in, which I kind of got to revisit when I did Good Night and Good Luck, because when we were doing sort of the CBS stuff from Edward R. Murrow's period, there were a lot of similarities. In fact, the character that I played, which I didn't even know until after I'd done the movie, and my dad told me the character I played had been one of my dad's bosses at one of his oh. first TV jobs, which is crazy, right? You know, well, but it's, crazy. A, it's a small world in New York, but it was a magical place to play because I'd sit while they, even if I, if I was very quiet, I could just be somewhere else on the stage while they were shooting the news or shooting one of the shows, and I'd sit on... I remember he had, you know, what's exciting when you're a kid, chairs with wheels, they had rolly chairs and I'd roll back and, and I'd play with some of the props from romp room. I remember they had the, those, uh, those inflatable clowns that used to punch the punch, you know, and so. Oh yeah. With, I learned about those in psychology the, class. I think they, they did experiments <laughs> with those, right? <laughs> Probably. But they, you know, they get, they, 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 they'd, uh, they'd use them on the romper room and that's, those were toys when in the seventies, but so it was kind of a magical place to grow up in. And then, you know, my dad, he was, he, he, a lot of the shows he directed were live. So it's live TV, the news mm -hmm. and things like that. But usually most of the shows, even if they weren't live, they directed them and they shot them as if they were live. So he'd be in the control room. And now, you know, we've got, I mean, I've got more power and bandwidth in, in my house than they had in that entire control room, but it's an all analog world. And it was really sexy because I remember it felt like you're in mission control. I mean, it was called the control room and my dad would be in there and he'd have an an analog chromatic stopwatch and he'd be like camera two camera three because he you know he had half hour to get the thing in they knew when the commercials but it's there's no there's nothing digital it was all and it was he always seemed like just it was the, he seemed super cool he was super sexy i think everyone was attracted to him because it's like it's such a powerful position and it's a, there's so much pressure and stress and he handled it with such grace so it was really cool to be part of that in, in that world and then he directed this show uh, called the Joe Franklin Show. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I've only it, just I've heard you talking about it on uh, other oh, okay. And stuff. Yeah. Yes. So he. Uh, so Joe Franklin. I mean, Joe Franklin was this amazing guy, and he kind of invented, in some ways, that format, the talk show format, that the Tonight mm. Show and stuff. And he was a New York guy, and he was a radio guy, and he had, but he had this, and then a lot of people know it because they parodied, they parodied, parodied. Oh, I'm, I use my Juilliard. I haven't warmed up my lips this morning. <laughs> They parodied, parodied it on SNL with Billy Crystal playing him, but it was like a really cool show because all, you'd have all of these celebrities and you'd have all of these people who were never going to be celebrities. Like I say, who like play organ in Piscataway, New Jersey at some, you know, Vinny's bar and grill, but like he treated them all like they were stars and it was magical. So I'd sit there and all these people come through. I mean, Bing Crosby and, you know, and Barbara Streisand and all of these people would come through and be on the show. So I was exposed to that. So it was kind of, um, it's a, a piece of time that doesn't exist anymore. You know, that, that world yeah. of live TV in New York. And it was still, even for the, you know, the biggest city in America or, you know, uh, one of the most important cities in the world, it was still very um, basic in the way it was done. You know, I always feel, I feel grateful that I got to live the transition from the fully analog world and live in that fully analog world and into the digital world. Cause there were, there were some, it, it was a magical time. And so it was, he was right at times square, right at 42nd street. And it had all this crazy energy. Um, it, it, I say like 42nd street at the time was all movie theaters only showing triple X movies or Kung Fu movies. And <laughs> right. That's all it was. And, okay. but it still had all of the sort of, things that have been there since the 40s the the winston ad with the with the blows out the steam you know the guy's smoking and and it it had this energy and this magic and also you know it was in 
incredibly dangerous and seedy at the same time. But it was really cool to get to spend so much time and uh, with my dad at work. And as far as like it making me want to become an actor, well, the fir- my first professional gig, I guess, my first thing we used to have to do at Channel Nine all the kids of the uh, of the people who work there would come and do the Christmas promos. So like on behalf of my family and the entire WOR family, we want to wish you a happy holiday season, right? That, that was like the first thing I ever did in front of the camera. And I remember being so nervous the first time I did it. Then you try to wait to see when it was going to air. Like he would find out because probably because there were so many kids who, uh, of, of the people who worked there. So you, you knew like, oh, on 4.36 p.m. on December 27th, your promo is going to air. So you'd watch it. But uh but then and then, you know, through Joe Franklin, because of, you know, he was such a institution and everyone came on, he always had access to he'd go to every opening night of all the of the Broadway shows and then he always got extra tickets. So yeah. I think predominantly most of the shows that I saw probably were tickets that Joe had given my dad. And um, and so I got to see a lot of uh, um, an amazing theater, which was you know, profoundly transformational for me. I mean, I remember seeing the original cast of Pippin in 1975. And, um, but I think, you know, and then we got to see the show that really, I, I, I often think this was the one that had the most profound effect on me, the original uh, production of Sweeney Todd, the Stephen Sondheim. Oh, yeah, musical. that's a big one. It was amazing because it Didn't was- Johnny Depp play it in um, the movie? He did it in the movie. Yeah. Yes, exactly. He did it in the movie. But in the original uh, Broadway cast was um, Angela Lansbury and Len Cariou. And I just remember the theater was, and this was the 70s, even, uh, even though New York was in this, you know, it was a very strange time. It was artistically so, um, so alive and so um, magnificent. And so I remember- You'd seen traditional plays where the curtains drawn and the over, you know, tra- traditional musicals, the curtains drawn and the orchestra is in the pit and they, you know, you hear the overture and you feel all those butterflies and that excitement of the show starting. But this was this really crazy thing. It was like, I think it was the Eurus Theater and there was no screen. There was, I mean, no um, curtain. The And they pulled, the set went all the way back to sort of the bricks and the bones of the theater. And they built this sort of cast iron industrial revolution, very bare set. And then they had this revolving piece that came in the middle that where, where the, uh, the pie shop and where his uh, barbershop was, but it, it was stark and it was open. And you're, so you're already in a mood. You're feeling this late, mm. you know, 19th century England industrial revolution. And there's something very hard about it. And then the steam whistle goes off and that's what starts it. And it, it jolts mm. you and, and you're in it. So it was the first time. And, and I just remember, I mean, that's my, it's my favorite musical uh, of many musicals. Um, and uh, and that was another thing, you know. My dad had a um, extraordinary collection. I guess my mom and my dad, but uh, of of musical theater of LPs. And I, you know, my earliest memories are just laying on the floor at five and listening to Barbara Streisand and Funny Girl and playing those LPs. And that had so all of the uh, raw materials for making me want to become an actor were all there. I'm listening to musicals, and yes, I'm, I'm my dad's in television, and I'm I'm going down to Times Square and the theater district all the time. And, and, and all of those musicals and plays that I saw at that time uh, profoundly affected me. I mean, I can, I remember them better than most of my childhood memories. What about any movies or TV shows at the time? Yeah. I mean, movies were huge and all it's interesting too, because that time is very evocative for me uh, having grown up there. I mean, so all of the Lumet films, I mean, still my favorite film to this day is dog day afternoon. 
Um, oh, it's a good Al Pacino. Yeah, it's really good. John Cazale and Al Pacino and true Cinema- story too. I think right. It's it's a true story. Yeah, I mean based yeah. on a true story, right? Yeah, he he robbed a bank so he could help his his partner get a sex change operation, and and it's an but it's an amazing movie, and it and it's a it's a beautiful piece of on New York. Then all those Lamette movies from then are profoundly influential. Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon, and of course all of the, I mean the seventies. It's I feel very fortunate that I got to grow up then. Um, because it, it wasn't artistically, it was a profoundly fertile time. I mean, in music, obviously, I mean, I always joke with my friends when you go, you know, when they, when, you know, some Rolling Stone or whoever will come out with like the top hundred songs of the seventies, like, how could you possibly do that? You can't. And it's just, well, because it's in every genre. I mean, yeah, in every genre you have country music in soul and i mean disco in rock, rock and, yeah disco yeah. and it's amazing punk. to think how much music was created in, in sonic landscapes that we'd never seen before i mean heard before sorry we'd never heard before that i mean you know the beatles you know first came on the scene 62 63 and my god by like by 76 we've got the sex pistols and you know and, and it's amazing how much it happened and i mean uh, popular music in the 70s but i even think about all this just the regular rock bands that now i mean it, it's such a different time and I, so my my and you know the younger uh people can get upset with me now but i go like if you made the best hundred songs in the last 10 years they'd be okay but i don't think they'd even i don't think right. that, you know but it's also you don't get to pick the time you live in so there are always creative these incredibly fertile times and then there are these fallow times i mean we could have all grown up in the era of marching band music and you know john <laughs> john philip yeah. is the best thing going but the 70s were this incredible time so we'd come out of the 60s which you know obviously been revolutionary in in the change in music and the change in culture and the change in politics and the and then it was just so fertile in every realm. So much great theater. So many, but all, I think most of my favorite movies are all from the seventies. And it's been fun. Uh, my daughter's thirteen now, and it's been fun. My wife and I are going back and showing her all these movies, and some seeing the ones that hold up and the ones that are are timeless. And um, I mean, just think about all the presidents, men, and I mean, uh, Godfather and Apocalypse Now, and all those things. Deer uh, Hunter. Dear, I mean, my God, yeah, Chimino. I mean, I mean, just watching Taxi Driver, I had, I hadn't seen oh, it. That's a good one. Oh my God, it's so good because I it still holds up really well too. I think beyond, and you also understand why De Niro is such a, a huge star because what he brought to that, he's so vulnerable. He's incredibly vulnerable. So all of his aggression comes out of this fragility, and it's just achingly beautiful i mean scorsese i mean and then the first movie that they did together mean streets with Keitel. i mean so much great stuff was happening and and i think what makes i think what's so different then and was unique about that period is these movies that would we would consider independent or or auteur films and with music it was all done in, within the corporate system. So big studios are making those movies and big, big record sure. companies are putting out those albums. Right. Right. And you know, it's, it's interesting that there was, there was a hunger and for that depth, uh, that quality, that realism. Cause that's also, I think what, what really made the seventies unique was all of the great. So let's just talk, let's pick a genre, let's movies, all of the revolutions in acting and directing that had happened in America in the fifties through the actor studio and all of that kind of stuff. 
now had come to fruition and you've got these directors, I mean, all these amazing directors, you know, are all going to school together. You got Lucas and Spielberg and Coppola and, and, and Cimino and, and um, uh, Scorsese, of course, and they, they all know each other and they're, they're, they've been inspired by the European new wave stuff. And they're making these beautiful, gritty, realistic um, uh, movies that are, that were, it's interesting because they were they were profound and they weren't escapism, you know. And then by the end of the decade, we started getting. We were like, all right, we've had enough of 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 reality because life was hard. That's the other because that's, yeah, that's, that's yeah. I was thinking yeah. that same thing when you're talking. Yeah. I'm thinking all those '70s yeah. movies. They're all so serious and dark. There wasn't a lot of good comedies in the '70s. Now in the '80s, I feel like it was all comedies. And then in the 90s, it went back to like the Pulp Fictions and the Fight Clubs. It was more like the gritty, like dark films. It's interesting. I mean, I've heard smarter people than I have talked about why you can have these periods and why we're allowed to reflect and, 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 and then why we want to escape. I mean, it's very, I mean, there was, the thing is, I mean, the business has changed so much too, because with those movies, with say a Godfather or something like that, they didn't have to have an opening weekend. You know, that all changed hmm. with yeah. Jaws and Star Wars and things like that, where suddenly you needed an opening weekend and you needed this blockbuster things. Movies were allowed to build slowly by word of mouth. And so something something unexpected could catch fire and it had the time to grow and then become um, iconic. I mean, all these movies are iconic and profoundly influential. But, uh, but then I think life was hard. I mean, the 70s were... Uh, you know, for me, growing up in New York City, I mean, New York City had gone bankrupt, and it was um, incredibly dangerous and falling apart and crime-ridden, uh, but at the same time, profoundly creative. So there was all this great theater oh. on Broadway and, and music scene. I mean, obviously, one of my most favorite music scenes is the New York punk scene. Everything that's going down on downtown and CBGBs, and then the beginning of hip hop, and um, and then how you know punk mo morphed into you know, um, to alternative and new wave and post-punk. Uh, it was, it, it was a creative time. And I think, and maybe part of it as now, as we're talking about it too, is, is that there was time now there's not time to, to build things, you know, before the internet, you had the luxury of, you had a scene. So the Midwest had a scene and the deep South had a scene. So you could be in Athens, Georgia, and you could be the B-52s and you're playing or REM and you're playing at university of Georgia all the time. And you start to build up your chops. And by the time someone gets, you know, your record gets handed off to some DJ somewhere else and like, Oh, this is amazing. And then that word of mouth spreads. But now, you know, you, you can record a song in your bedroom and launch it to the world that immediately. So but it doesn't always usually happen that way. No, it's it's weird. It's like a yeah. catch twenty two because I feel like yeah, it's easier. You don't have to have a record label and all that, but then it's still, it's like there's so much more competition now. There's so sure. many movies and TV sure. shows and bands and and podcasts. And I mean, you know, like you were Joe Franklin. There was like three right. talk shows, three channels. Right. Now there's like <laughs> exactly. how many? I mean, it's almost too much. It's crazy. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because there's something magical about the egalitarianness of the technology now. The fact that, I mean, because if you wanted to make a movie, if you were a young filmmaker 20 years ago, you, you had to buy film stock and you had to get a camera and it was incredibly expensive to make a movie. I mean, mm -hmm. now you can make a movie on your phone. And um, I mean, even as a frustrated teenage musician, I mean, 
shit, if I'd had garage band, you know, or, or access to all of the online uh, plug-in instruments and that technology and that ability to record a song, man, I had a four track uh, cassette recorder, right? So every time you laid down another track, it just got shittier and shittier because the, the quality yeah. would, would degrade. Um, so you played music, a, you sang or play guitar or what did you, I did. I played, I was, uh, uh, I mean, I still play guitar, uh, but okay. yeah, I mean, I, I, but I, yeah, it was when I'm, I, I I was straddling the line between musician and actor for my oh, pre okay. my preteen years and then my teen years, and uh and then acting just won out by about tenth grade. It just seemed that was I was an enthusiastic musician and but I wasn't a particularly I wasn't particularly great or good. I mean, I really love it. And and, and in my later life, in my forties, I got back into it again, started a band mm -hmm. and, and, and got much better, you know, got my chops down and uh, I still love it. I'm mean, I still, I'll, 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 I'll be recording stuff tonight, you know, after, after dinner, after everyone's, everyone else watching TV, I'll start, you know, laying down some stuff, which is, which is great, you know? So, but yeah, so it'll be my first, I, I played, I, I had a couple of, uh, we played the eighth grade dance, my, my, uh, my eighth grade band, Black and Blue. And, uh, but well, that was a disaster. I, that, that probably is what scared me away from music for a little while because um, we had like two songs down really, really well. And then we got, uh, we, we auditioned to play the eighth, seventh, eighth grade dance. And then uh, we kind of thought we had maybe 20 more ready to go and they just really weren't ready to go and uh so and i it's so funny too because i think about gear and the world when i was first buying a guitar so this is like 1979 1980 you go to you go to 48th street in manhattan and there was manny's and there was sam ash and the original sam ash and there was manny's and there were a couple of oh, vintage places which to this day i still regret because you could probably buy like a 1950s les paul in there for like 300 bucks right there was because no one wanted them right? because because in 79 80 right that's when the bc riches are coming in and people want color and then eddie van halen's come along so everyone wants colorful guitars you know right. you could, i mean you could have bought like a les paul I, I remember still i can picture every les paul jr with those p90 pickups in the window there and you're like they were literally like 200 bucks i mean that's why um you know johnny thunders in in the dolls and then you know heartbreakers on his own because he was spending so much money on heroin, he would. That's why he always played <laughs> Les Paul Juniors. No, because he, he's like, that's oh, funny, right? Because they were the cheapest guitar to buy, but he, they look so fucking great. But anyway, so I used to go to Manny's, and Manny's was sort of the 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 original big music store, and all the bands would go in there. You know, Zeppelin would go in there. Everyone would go in there, but all of the gear, all of the guitars, were behind glass. And there was, they would never let a 12 year old play them. They, you could look at them, but then like you had to just hand over cash to even get a hold of that guitar, you know? So is you know, I, I wish I'd grown up in the guitar center uh, era where you could just go in there and, and, you know, and play enter Sandman for as long as you want. Right. But it's yeah. like, uh, but so much we're talking about that dance. So there was the only guitars they had out were these um, sort of, low-end uh japanese knockoffs of this company called hondo not honda but hondo <laughs> and interesting and, and i bought this sg um copy that was i, I swear to you I, it, if it held its tune for one chord it was a miracle right you just you'd hit the first chord and it's completely out of tune i even changed the tuning heads on it and all that kind of stuff but so that was that didn't help uh during our show mm -hmm. but but you know when, when i was first in 
when I was first in bands in like eighth grade, I was much more, we were spending much more time with band politics than actually like uh, playing music. We were into all of the other things. So you spend most of the day just kicking people out of the band and, <laughs> and then trying to hire people to be in the band. And then you can never find a drummer. No one ever wanted to play the drums. And it was always hard to find a bass player. So we'd always get, I'd always, we'd always get one of our friends who had a little more cash and be like, Hey, we take him downtown. We take him down up 48th street and be like, Hey, buy that bass. And we'll teach you how to play the bass. How, how hard can it be? Eh. But um, yeah, so the eighth grade dance was a little traumatic. Um, and then by 10th grade, I was fully committed to being um, an actor. But, yeah, but I'm just, a frustrated musician. Okay. That's, well, yeah, that's yeah. cool. You have the, you yeah. can still go back and play it now and stuff. But oh, yeah. obviously, the acting paid the bills. So that's, it paid the bills. And it just seemed like there were, I mean, it, I, I'm, I'm built for it because I think it's probably I have a very low attention span or a short attention span. And I, I like changing, you know, and going. So I, instead of, I always thought when I was a little kid, oh, I want to be this, I want to be that. It's like, oh, I'll be an actor and I can be all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think, yeah, I'm a natural ham and it's probably the only thing I'm really good at. So, I mean, and I'm, you know, I'm only moderately good at it. So, <laughs> but luckily, well, luckily it's, it's paying the bills. You're pretty good. Yeah. I mean, when, so when was your first like paid acting gig? It was that it was in, you started getting, you got like an agent in high school, which is crazy to me. I did, but that's also, you know, we're talking about New York city. That was kind of the magic of growing up in that city. So I, I was very fortunate that I had this incredible uh, theater program at my high school in Manhattan. And the year that I started as a freshman Trinity school. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And the year that I went into ninth grade into the high school, um, there was a new head of the drama department, this guy named Michael Gilbert. And he was amazing. And he kind of just, um, overhauled the entire program. And, and we, so we were doing amazing plays. We're doing the crucible and we're doing, I did Amadeus there and, and, and we're doing big musicals. And uh, to this day, I don't think I've ever enjoyed, uh, any production as much as I enjoyed those productions back then. And there were so many good actors there. One of my best friends has gone on, a bunch of people from my class and from the classes around me have gone on to become professional actors or professional writers or directors. So it was a very creatively fertile time. And the other thing about it was it's New York City. It's uh, it's a, a private school in New York City. So it wasn't like really if you were playing you weren't going to become a professional baseball player or soccer player from any of those teams. So uh, the plays though attracted girls um, from all over the city. So it was, uh, so it was also socially really advantageous because Uh I mean, obviously I think, you know, most people get in, most uh, people get into uh, acting because they enjoy pretending and they want to, they want to meet people to make out with. Um, yeah. Right. Right. Come on. It's like, that's, that's exactly. yeah. So, but yes, yeah, why, so, why does a guy do anything? <laughs> what is a guy, a guy, you know, a guy, girl, like, I mean, it's just, yeah, exactly. But that was definitely a, a prime motivator, but yeah. And then I was very fortunate that we're doing the diary of Anne Frank and um, one of the people in the cast, they were friends with a manager and that person came to see the show. And I got my first manager, my senior year in high school. And um, that afternoon I, I auditioned the, uh, afternoon after I met them, I, I did my first commercial audition and got that. And so I thought it was always going to be like that. That was, that was, a, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't, that was a, right. that was a, that was a very rude awakening. Um, and, uh, but yeah. And then I, so I've been doing it professionally since I was, I've earned a living at it since I was 16, 17. 
Yeah. So then yeah. like with the Trinity school and, and, and Juilliard too, there yeah. must've been a lot of people that you were classmates with that went on to do great things or famous oh, or whatever. Yeah. What about, was there people that, that like at Juilliard, you think everyone's going to make it. Is there some people that didn't make it that are just, they just quit the arts and did something else. So that, what do you think happened there? Do they lose their passion or, you know, it's so interesting. Um, it's such a, it's a crazy business. Right. And, uh, I think about this more and more, especially as I get older and, and uh, I, I'm definitely contemplating teaching and I certainly young now, you know, my joke is I used to be the youngest guy on every show I'm on and now I'm the oldest guy. So suddenly just by, just by, you know, dint of uh, making it this far and surviving, I have some sort of um, implied wisdom. So people are always, you know, want to asking for advice and, and it's a, it's a tough business. And like, I know so many incredibly talented people who don't work as much as they should or never worked. Um, but it's, it's a lot of luck. It's a lot of, yeah, being in the right place in the right time. And also just keeping your shit together. Because I think like someone asked me the other day, like advice you gave actors and I gave something sort of hackneyed, but then I realized I, th I thought about it as, 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 as I was contemplating, what I said, and I realized the most important thing you need to do as a professional actor is um, you need to have some sort of control and command over yourself and your ego because it's a lot of ups and downs. And um, and sometimes, you know, uh, it's a perpetual, uh, uh, you know, uh, advance and you're constantly, and that's great, but that's very rarely how it is. And um, you know, someone smarter than me said the patron saint of uh, actors is Sisyphus. And do you know... Um, do you know the myth of Sisyphus? No. It's, so, so, so it's one of, it's one of these, it's a, a Greek myth where he was cursed by the gods. He was punished by the gods. So his every day he had to roll a rock up, up the hill. And every oh, night, okay. every night the rock rolled back down. Right? right. And that's it. You know, you roll the rock up and I've had, I've had so many big breaks, right? I've had lots of things where you go, okay, this is it. I think I can coast for the rest of my career. And it's never that. you. The business changes, you change, you get to a place where like, we don't know what to do with you or you need to, um, uh, so you need to understand that it's not personal. That's the number one. It's really hard not to take things personally. Yeah. Even, I mean, you know, I, I work, I've been really, really, really lucky. Um, I have paid the bills and raised a family and worked as an actor my entire career. In fact, I often feel that I curse myself because I remember at Trinity, I never said, I said, I, I had my plan for the future. I go, I don't want, I never said, Oh, I want to be a star. I want to be this. I go, I want to be a working actor. That's all I want to be. And I remember saying that to myself very clearly in my senior year of high school. And I don't know if, if I created that or if I just realized that's what I would be, or I don't really know, but I've been fortunate enough and cursed enough to be, I'm a working actor. I work. And, but there are periods where you go, I don't know if I'm ever going to work again. And, yeah. So I was going to ask you about yeah, that. Like how yeah. long are the breaks in between acting jobs for shows and movies? Like do you sometimes go months and then are you aud auditioning during that time? Or is there some time where you just sit around and wait by the phone? And it, I mean, there must, so there's times where maybe you think, it's over at that point? Like how long does it go? Well, I think all actors think it's over every time. I think if you, if you finish a job and you don't have another one lined up right away, I think most people assume it's over. Sometimes you're in the middle of a job and you're like, I think it's over. I think Even I've blown it. Even with a massive resume you have, like all these credits. It's, it's so funny. You know, I, um, 
I worked with, do you know the actor Charles Durning? Are you familiar with talking yeah. about? Yeah. So talking about Dog yeah. Day Afternoon, he played the cop in Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, he was uh, Jessica Lange's okay. dad in Pussy. One of the greatest actors of all time. Um, just an amazing, I think he's, you know, probably won uh, an Emmy, a Tony and an Oscar. He's just an incredible actor. And I worked with him on this show that I did, Homicide. So I did the show called Homicide Life on the Streets back in the mm-hmm. 90s. And I'm sitting next to him in the scene and he has to deliver this two-page speech and he delivers it the first take and it's just it's magic i'm just like this guy is amazing and he delivers it the second time oh, different and equally brilliant does it the third time and he goes okay that one was good and i go mr Durning, those were they were all amazing he goes yeah but that was the only one that was the first one i did where i wasn't worried if you thought i was any good and i go and I said, it never goes away, does it? And he goes, it never goes away. So there's that, there's a, because to become, a, to be an actor, to be a good actor, I think you have to have a certain vulnerability, but then you, to, to do your work, but then you have to have this, you, Stella Adler, uh, a famous acting teacher said, you, uh, an actor needs the heart of a rose and the hide of a rhinoceros. And, but those are hard things to keep going at the same time. So part of that sensitivity and that vulnerability that makes you good at this and 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 is also you know you're 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 going to have a degree of self-loathing and uh and 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 it's funny because the more uh I you know when I was younger I certainly wouldn't be comfortable having that conversation about you know insecurities and things like that but as you get older and you realize no no there's there's strength in talking about your vulnerabilities and now you can have those conversations and I haven't met an actor yet where you talk about this and they don't reveal that and mm-hmm. and and you know the ones who don't feel that way are probably psychotic and well, so, so if you're playing like in the uh what's the uh, movie I just watched the leverage okay so you're right. playing this pharmaceutical billionaire right a piece of shit right but those right. guys like don't have a conscious right i don't think they're getting uh worried about what people think about so how do you no. play that character i guess that's acting right because like you have a vulnerability and you're pretending like you don't give a shit like it's all about you a total <laughs> narcissist right well that's the best part that's the, i think that's the best part about being an actor is you get to you know i play you know certainly in the last 15 years i play all only like these horrible horrible people like bad guys and people meet me and they're like you're so nice you're so nice in real yeah. life i'm like yeah this is I, this is my chance to sort of exercise that id that part of you you know because we're all we mm. all have all of those qualities within ourselves but there's no way in my real life i could ever treat anyone the way any of those characters treat them so it's fun and you have some sort of insight into it so i i mean there's nothing there's nothing more fun than playing a bad guy because they've got you try to make the bad guy somewhat likable or you just go all in and go this guy's going to be a freaking asshole like what you know i think I think the reason that I get cast often as bad guys or sort of uh, characters who you're, you're not sure about um, that you're, you know, you're, they're morally ambivalent. I think the reason often I get cast in those, in those parts is because I am likable. So they're not completely um, heinous, right? Mm-hmm. Because you could just play just, and also I, I think too, as an actor, I never approach a character like they're the bad guy, right? So even the worst person on the planet probably thinks they're pretty good. And so, especially if they're a sociopath and uh, you yeah. know, a, a captain of industry. So they're just fun because, I mean, the leverage one, that was hilarious because I'd prepared, 
I, I was really obsessed with the Sackler family and everything that was going on with Purdue Pharma. You know, it was in the news. Oh, I yeah. I saw that. Uh, the uh, the Michael Keaton show. Was that exactly. the one that was highlighted that? That was crazy. Dope. Yeah. So I was yeah. fascinated by those guys. And so when I got cast in Leverage, I wasn't really hip to the show. And um, so I started and I had, it was one of those, it was my first job after lockdown. So I had, a, I had like two weeks to prepare, which was amazing. So I spent all this time creating as if I was going to be in a Scorsese movie. Like I was really, <laughs> I created like a whole character background. I'd done a whole diary for him. I was like, really, wow. really, really. And I created this basically, you know, a, a Sackler and I get there and we're doing, we're shooting the first, cause this is the first day of shooting and we're, they're back and I see people hiding behind potted plants and they're doing, it's, it's much broader. And I was like, Oh, I've prepared for the wrong show. And so I talked to one of the actors on the show and I go, Oh my God, I thought I prepared for like, as if I'm doing a Scorsese movie. And she's like, no, 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 this is Scooby-Doo. We're doing Scooby-Doo. And okay, then I, that makes sense too, because when I'm watching, I'm like, is it, I was going to ask you, is it supposed to be kind of campy? Yes. So that, and that was great. That was like, because I, it was like carte blanche. So I, I, I was like, I go, I, you know, so all my preparation, I'm like, rip. And I go, but then if it's Scooby Doo, I get to play my most fun villain. So I had the best time on okay. that show. Cause like, you know, if it's Scooby Doo, then you can, you can, that do- makes sense. Yeah. So then my no, motto, yeah, go ahead. Watching it, yeah. And I, I, at first I didn't really know which way, if it was going to be more serious or more Scooby Doo, but right. I think the part where I, I, I realized that's interesting. You say Scooby Doo, <laughs> they go into this, they go into this computer room, right? Or there's right. like, computer screens and <laughs> there's like a sound effect like a i'm like i haven't heard computers make a doodle 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 sound since like i don't know if they ever did that but definitely in like night rider in the 80s you know they would do those sounds and i'm like dude computer screens in 2020 do not go doodle 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 when you when you look at them i mean it was just really it was really campy i was like oh this is kind of funny it's funny and it was so much fun to do so you know that's another you know that's you always have to remember, and and now you know I'm constantly relearning lessons, and so you have to really know the genre of the show you're doing. But it ended up being tons, yeah, tons of fun. That's a good point. Yeah, well, like with homicide, so like that's always fun because what kid hasn't played cops and robbers? You know, every kid does yeah. that. So do you yeah. practice like your moves, like your your gun moves, like this, and like your poses, and you're you know you're showing the badge and all that stuff because you're friends with cops, right? So did yeah. you have them show you the right way to do all that stuff? Well, that's a funny. That's, that's a really funny story. So um, actually, it reminds me, you talk about New York and growing up in the 80s. Um, one of my first performances as a cop was at an Irish bar when I was 16. So uh, this, the difference, difference between New York City and, and especially in the 70s and the 80s is like at 14, I could go to into bars. I had braces on my teeth and I could go into bars right now. The drinking age was 18, but it was still like, it just was New York had bigger problems. They really, hmm. they weren't enforcing that kind of shit. And, um, and I, so now I'm like 16 and I'm in, I'm in a bar. I was in on the East side of New York, big Irish bar, old school Irish bar. Not like these new where everything's in Gaelic. It, this was just fluorescent lighting and the best beer. No one drank Guinness. Everyone drank Budweiser. And if you could <laughs> afford it and it had a little cafeteria, a hot plate, thing in the front so the food would be like you literally bring a tray through and all these all these old school irish bars they're all gone they'll be like the blarney oh. stone i think this was the blarney stone it'd be dublin house they'd have all these names and they were amazing because they were they were truly irish bars they're run by irish people filled with irish people but it was yeah. it, it, it wasn't sort of this uh thatched cottage uh gaelic irish bar that's now uh pervasive it was just it was the real deal. Legit, um, yeah, that's cool. Legit. Uh, i mean like in fact when, when my I, grandma's 100 percent irish so i know all about yeah 
Exactly. And, and my wife and we got married in Ireland. My, my daughter's got an Irish name. Like, no, we same thing. But I remember because my last neighborhood in New York uh, was Hell's Kitchen when it was still Hell's Kitchen. Not now. Uh, and I think they've returned it to Hell's Kitchen. But I there was an mm-hmm. Irish bar there because they used to have these snugs, too. And snug would be like it's just like half a building. Okay. Uh, which is an old Irish term too, like it's not, but it's like a tiny bar. Like it's just wide enough for the door, the bar, and a seat, right? And you come in there. <laughs> there was there was one where like they didn't even have anything on draft. Like you just had got got cans of beers. But the first time that I played a cop, first time I played a cop, I was in uh I you know, I've been surrounded by cops. New York, I always found New York cops really fascinating. Um, and uh so we're at this bar, we're at I think the Blarney Stone, and my friend, one of my friends, uh another actor guy theater guy he pulls out this fake badge and he's like i got look at this fake badge i got i was like oh give me that and i saw there was a table of yeah i'm 16 i'm in fucking junior in high school but i see a table of kids who are definitely a year younger than us so i go over there and i'm like i'm gonna need to see your ids i flash them the badge and i pretend to be a cop and i card all of them and <laughs> and and i and i fully i was like a fully it was a fully immersed committed performance like one girl's talking back to me i'm like get the fuck out of here you're out you know i kick him out and i was like <laughs> and i know that the bartender saw me doing it but he was having a laugh because he knew me but I, I i kicked like two of the kids out um <laughs> are these kids that bullied you or are you just being just having fun I was just having fun. Now later they got their revenge on me because like, oh. like it was like three months later. I'm standing at the bus stop outside that place, and a kid pokes their head out that door, and they're like, "There he is!" And like three of them came out to me, and that, w- that was my first street fight. But that's another story. Oh shit! Uh, yeah, they were, but uh, but yeah. So when homicide came along, it's interesting because I I graduated Juilliard and I'd done my first Broadway play, and now I was done. New York. I'd grown up in New York. I'd lived there. I was gonna I'm gonna go out to Los Angeles, and I got out to Los Angeles, and this is 1992. And I had this sort of existential crisis, which I think a lot of actors go through where you're going, what am I doing? Uh, this is, I'm not contributing to the world. Mm-hmm. I, I think I, I want to become a cop. And so I, I befriended all these LAPD guys and I'd hang out with them and I was reading every book on real life police stuff. And, and, um, and I'd gone on this ride along with uh, an LAPD guy that I befriended in in Watts, and and it was it was funny because all the cops that I met, they all wanted to become actors, and uh, and I realized you know, I'm an actor. That's really what I'm supposed to do. But I go, I I really I, I sort of set this intention for myself. Not that that made it happen, but I was like, I just want to play a cop truthfully on TV. That's my goal. That's what. And I so then I still spent the next few years. Just, I was obsessed with it. I'd research it. And so when Homicide came on the air, I remember going, I want to be on that show. I want to be on that show. I watched, I remember watching the pilot and Andre who played Frank Pembleton, I'd gone to Juilliard with him and I was like, I want to be on that show. And so my favorite actors, I mean, were on that, Ned Beatty, I mean, come on, you know, John Polito. And so I remember I got the audition for it. So this is after their second or third season and I got the audition. And back in the early nineties, everything that I went up for because I, I used to have blonde hair before it turned gray. I had blonde hair, blue eyes. Every description of every character I've read for it, they want, they go, we want a Johnny Depp type, a Johnny Depp type. He was the template. And I was like, oh, I'm definitely not a Johnny Depp type. But I go, I, I've really, I've researched this character. I know who it is. Like, like if they're willing to cast a blonde, blue-eyed guy, I'm going to get this part. And it was an amazing scene, beautifully written. And I got it. And I show up there. And I think much to their initial uh, dismay, they had written me, Tom Fontana told me later, and I re- remember reading, he, he, he designed my character as a frat boy with a gun. 
<laughs> right. So okay. I think I was I would think I was brought on to bring some sex appeal, some irreverence, something like that. But okay. But I had a whole other plan. And so I'd be like, oh, I don't know. I think I should do it this way. And so like all of that desire to play a cop truthfully on TV mixed with their, I mean, the best writing, you know, that one can imagine and, and this incredible cast, it sort of morphed. And then that character had this sort of extraordinary trajectory. So, but I didn't, I didn't, so to answer your original question, I didn't do any um, pulling out my badge or my gun in the mirror. I, 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 but because I, I, by that point, I felt like I know, like I, you know, I was in preparation for this. When I thought I was going to become a cop, I had gone, because I grew up in New York City, I'd never really handled guns. I used to go to the shooting range once a week and I was firing all the guns the cops would fire because I was like, I, I knew that when I got on set, I wanted to look good with, I wanted to be able to handle a gun properly and, and all of that kind of stuff. So in a weird way, I prepared for that character for like three years before I got it. Yeah. That's cool. Well, so yeah. that's, and that's obviously, that's a big role because you're going to do multiple episodes. But like when you have kind of a smaller part, like in Moneyball, yeah. And you're playing a real life person. Do you get to research it? Do you reach out to Mark Shapiro? I mean, that's a great casting job, by the way, because I looked yeah. at him and I looked at you. I was like, you look like Mark Shapiro. Like, it's a, it's a pretty good casting job. You know, it's really funny. It just depends. Like, sometimes you were talking about, we said that leverage story. And what I always want to say to younger actors is, you may have a way of preparing, but you're probably going to have to change it for every job. <laughs> you kind of, you kind of need to know how you work. Yeah. But, what worked for the last, and this, and I only learned this the hard way by sucking a lot, like, you know, but with the best of intentions, but making similar mistakes, it's like, you, it's not a cookie cutter approach. So each job is different and you can get inspired by many things. So I could have been cast having not done no research for homicide, but just having an image of something uh, or song lyric would get me in the moment and I'm ready to go. Um, for that one, I happen to prepare, but like for Mark Shapiro, um, I, they cast me. I, I, I know nothing about sports. I'm not a sports guy at all. Right. Huh. I, I mean, I read, I read Michael Lewis's book and I, and the script was amazing, but I knew who the guy was. I had a real sense of who that guy was. And then when we went in to do it, uh, it was the first scene of the first day of shooting. And before that, because I've been doing so much TV, it was, the, it was the first movie I'd done in a while. Because it was going to be the first scene in the first day, so we shot on a Monday. On that Friday, we came in to do rehearsal. Now, I'm used to now, I'm such a TV veteran that we're doing 10 pages a day. We're never rehearsing. There's no time. You know, you've got um, to get it out. So I was like, rehearsal? How, how are we going to rehearse this scene? And, and uh, Bennett Miller, the director, had the script written by Sorkin and then Brad came in with his own, uh, Brad Pitt came in with his own version of the scene. And this is just, this is a testament to who this guy is. So usually if another actor's rewritten the scene, they've probably given themselves some pretty juicy shit to do. He hands me this bigger, this much bigger scene. And he'd given me all the stuff to do. He'd written me all these great parts, right? Cause so he's super mensch. But then when we got there on the day, we just improvised. We did the script, but we we improvised. When we did, when we shot it on the first day, we shot Brad's coverage first, so the camera's pointing at him, and we improvised for uh, from the time we got on the set until we went to lunch, so for like six hours. And we shot that movie on film, so Bennett would sit underneath the camera, and when the mag, we 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 just keep going until the mags ran out, until the film ran out, and they'd have to reload, and we'd go again. 
And it was magical. And Brad was amazing. And we'd improvise and we did crazy shit, like stuff that was never going to make in the movie. Like at one point I'm pretending to be Captain Kirk because he compliments my <laughs> chair. And I was like, those guys are the red shirts. They won't be here next week. You know, we, but, but it was fun. And it, then we'd work in the dialogue with the improv. And, uh, and, and then when we came back, I remember going to lunch and all the background guys were like, you're amazing. You're, you're killing it. I'm like, I haven't killed it yet. I haven't even been on camera. And I was like, it hasn't happened yet. So I was really nervous. I remember being at lunch going like, I don't know if I can improvise for another six hours. But then we came back and uh, Bennett would call out. The, he basically sort of gave each of the sort of improv stems or threads um, a title. He goes, do the Captain Kirk one. Now do this one, do that one. And then it all came together. But this goes back to what we were talking about, the 1970s movies. Um the method to his madness was by improvising and, and doing it so much and getting so comfortable. And that's why I think that movie is so spectacular. All those performances are, are, are amazing is no one was acting. No one was acting anymore. They'd stopped. No one was on the words. They were in the moment. Mm -hmm. And that's as a aesthetically as a audience member and as a actor, that's what I look for always. I don't want to see acting. I don't want to see a performance. I want to believe what's happening in front of me, even if it's happening a billion miles away on another star system, I want to believe it's really happening in front of me. And he was able to bring that aesthetic because, you know, we, the seventies really brought that to the mountaintop and we've lost, it goes and comes depending. I mean, obviously uh, the new, golden age of television that we're in right now and streamers. Mm -hmm. I think that's really brought that back. I mean, you know, you watch a show like Ozark or you watch The Wire, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff where you're seeing world-class acting. But yeah, I didn't have to re research Mark Shapiro. It, even in fact, they didn't want me to. They they were calling him Mark Shapiro too. And I'm like, I think it's Mark oh. Shapiro. That was the only, that was, I got it wrong too then. No, no, but that was the only research I did. I was like, I got, and I, I was nervous to say, like, hey guys, I think his name is Mark Shapiro. And they're like, it is, <laughs> it is Mark Shapiro. Oops. But no, but yeah, but then sometimes, but the research is, is the fun. It just depends on the job because I think that's also what's exciting about being an actor is you're exposed to worlds and periods that you never would have even thought about. So, you know, my first right. movie was this movie called Memphis Bell, which is about right. the B-17 bomber crews in the Second World War. So suddenly I, I, I had, and that was the old days. I had like three months to prepare. I knew everything about B-17 bombers and that so period. Cool. So it's amazing to immerse yourself in that. But you'll even just this leverage thing. Part of it was I got really into the artwork that he collected and I started learning about artists I didn't know about. So you get, that's you, cool. So that's fun. Those are sort of ancillary, but as far as preparing, it really depends because for me, one of the biggest um, changes that happened in my career was um, I'm halfway through, you know, this is so in the, in the late nineties, I was sort of hitting a rut. I was doing a lot of um, television, episodic television. And what would happen is I'd gone to Juilliard. I'd studied with all these amazing teachers. And they were like, you need to prepare. And you need to do all of these things. All of these things have to be done before you can show up to work. You need to know this and do this about your character and know what they had for breakfast in, 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 in fifth grade. And you're like, I don't have time. Because half these jobs I get, I... Um, I, they're calling me the night before and they're like, Hey, can you be in New Orleans tomorrow and play this guy? And I'm like, and I'm starting to feel really insecure wow. and I'm feeling really tight on set. And I befriended all of these amazing uh, improv comedians from Chicago in, in, in LA in the late nineties. And I started going to all their shows and then I started getting back and doing it. And that's how I'd started. I'd started really in at, at Trinity, my best friend, who's an amazing improviser. We just improvised all the time. And, 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 it, and by doing, comedic improv shows, it reminded me a couple of things that first of all, 
you can just have a word or a sentence and you can create a whole show out of that. And it brought me back to what really inspired me initially as an actor, because when you're, it's, it's just playing a kid's game at an adult level. It's just playing pretend. Huh. So like Chuck, I mean, if you and I are, you know, we're, we're eight years old and I'm like, okay, you're the King of England. I'm the King of France. You wouldn't go, you'd be like, okay, I'm the King of England. Oh, I'm the King of France. You wouldn't go like, oh, sorry, read. I'm not quite sure what the King of England would wear and how he, I'm going <laughs> to need to go away and come back. Right. right? Right. You There's just something to be said about that, too, because isn't that how De Niro prepares? He has like these notebooks where he writes all these notes about things. And like that's I mean, he's doing something right. Oh, no. It's the thing is, it's all good. Whatever yeah. you do that gets you there, but you never know what it's going to be. So you mm -hmm. also can remember that, like, yes, if you have the luxury of preparing and doing that and it and it and it translates to something emotional on the screen, not something intellectual. That's great. I love it. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I mean, I, I'm a, I love to prepare, but also you it's need to know time is what you're saying. But if you don't, you can create it. And then it got me a lot looser in my, from take to take. So, because what often happened, you know, you'd get sort of locked into a performance, you'd want to repeat it. And now, I mean, certainly since then, I, I, I want it to be different every time, not, not trying to, and I'm looking for the mistake because the, the, the way I think about it is, if you and I are in a scene, I could have planned something the night before in my room, right? Just even like this, this conversation is an improv. Like I could have planned stories I was going to tell you, but they're going to sound a little stale. But then you and I vibing off of each other, it's that one, it's not one plus one doesn't equal two. One plus one equals infinity. Because if we're in the moment together and mm -hmm. you, I pass you the ball and you spin the ball to me and we throw it like suddenly it's not what any, we couldn't have planned it because it, it yeah. only existed because we did it. And that's what you're looking for. You're looking for that mistake. I mean, I can't tell you how many times the fuck up becomes the scene and becomes really the key to the character or the key to the movie. I can't tell you. I mean, just, just that that improv, something that happens in the moment is so because it's magical and it's alive and it really, you know, it goes back to what we're saying it really is happening. It's happening right then. It never, it wasn't intellectually conceived of, um, and it's magic. It's the, it's you being open to the muse coming down from wherever it is and being transferred through you, and. And I think, you know, musicians are like that. And, you know, people like, you know, you, you hear about guys writing songs. They never, they're like, I don't know where it came from. I just started playing and it came out. And yeah, I hear that a lot. Right. And I think that's, it's the same thing, just acting. Now, preparation is, I always think of it, it's like, um, it's, it's, the, it's the chairlift to the top of the mountain. So whatever you need to get to the top of the mountain. So sometimes, yeah, I need to do a lot of things. I need to change the way I walk. I need to change the way I talk. I need to, um, I need to know certain things. So sometimes I need to do research. Yeah. Sometimes I don't, but once I'm at the top of the mountain, then I'm just on the ski run and you just okay. got to, you got to pull all that behind you. And I mean, at least that's how I, you know, like I said, that's how I like to do it. And I think if you think about it as a kid's game, just playing pretend, but you're just doing it at an adult level under yeah. shitty circumstances, you know? Well, like, because your latest thing that it's not out yet, but the Gaslit uh, right. show, that's a big one with Julia Roberts and Sean Penn. And then I think you're yeah. playing Deep Throat. So like you have to obviously know the details of that whole thing. I don't know all that. I'm excited to see the show because I, yeah. I, I, mean, I know the story, obviously, but mm -hmm. I don't know all the details. And that's like, I bet I'll learn a lot from watching that. Well, you're that's this. That's a perfect that's a perfect interjection on that, because like that production, that job 
was the the shining example of that. Now, I'd done a ton of research. I was a I'm a Watergate nerd. Um, you know, talking about my dad directing the news, Watergate was sort of my formative um political experience as a five mm-hmm. five year old. Like I I knew all those characters inside and out. And I was obsessed with it. And it really sort of changed my worldview. And I, like, I, I wish I, I could have easily had like a, instead of baseball cards, just the, all the characters from the Watergate scandal cards, right? <laughs> and traded those. So when I got called to do it, I was so excited. I knew all these people. And so I did do a ton of research on Mark Felt, which was really uh, helpful. But then when we got to set, Matt Ross, who's an amazing director, I, I went to Juilliard with him and we did Good Night and Good Luck together. I'm working with him and these incredible actors, John Carroll Lynch, and 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 we started improvising. So this wasn't what happened. And then he's like, "That's it. That's the scene." And so then we went out, and you'll you'll see it when it happens. That's but like interesting. We, so you don't want to. He doesn't want to make it exact. See, because that's the always problem that I have with these true story things. Is like they're too. There's too much improv improv improvisation. I want it to be exact. Why do they always have to take so much? Well, here's with? here's the thing because. It's very interesting. Um, first of all, people don't know exactly what the conversation was in those rooms, right? But That's what true. You, but what you want to feel in certain scenes, and obviously they didn't they didn't change any of the facts. None of the the sure. pertinent okay. information changed. But if a moment of behavior or this improvisation can actually better illustrate the relationships between the characters, hmm. that's much more powerful. And you're right yeah. there. So. You know, I mean, um, the best way to put it is like, uh, yeah, you're not taking any liberties with history. You don't know what they said, but now you un- you actually understand the scene better than it's. You're not reading a transcript, mm-hmm. and and That's it's true. and if it's, it's more done, natural, and it has to be done though, it has to be done. And they didn't do it all over the place, but it's interesting. It it actually more than just doing a transcript, it brings the scene alive, and you have a better sense because what I love about Gaslit, which is why I think the show is going to be so exceptional. It's, it's not the mythology of Watergate. It's not all, it's not about Woodward and Bernstein and it's not about, it's about all of the other characters um, who were important, you know, John Dean and John Mitchell and and their spouses and, and Martha Mitchell and, and, and all of these other players. Um, and, you know, this, this Watergate, Watergate's become a mythological part of our history. So the people who spoke out, of course, as always happens, become sort of some hagiography, right? They're just, they're now, their their intentions were always noble. They wanted to save democracy. And that's not really how people fucking operate, right? So the thing is there, so now you see that, no, most people are motivated by um, self-interest and <laughs> fear and um and that's really illustrated there. So the more you can make those people feel real by improvising or finding a moment that isn't necessarily historically accurate, but as if, you know, the crown isn't a documentary, but it's, you feel like you know who those people are. Uh-huh. It's, it's just his interpretation of what those scenes must be like behind those closed doors that no one's ever revealed. So it can be, but, but also improvisation is, you know, it's, it can only be used, <laughs> you know, it has to be used by professionals you know, for professional use only. Don't try this at home because yes, it's not, it's because you've, to answer your bigger question, it's because you've prepared because sometimes, you know, you'll work with an actor who's not ready to go. They don't know the line. So like, we're going to improvise. Like, no, no, no. You need to know it so you can forget it right. or, or move on from it. Um, 
And uh, so if it's done with tasty people who can pass the ball well, uh, then the, it's, it's, it's pretty magical and it's fun to be part of. Yeah. Sometimes I watch movies or scenes and, all, right. and it seems like they're improvised. I just watched a movie. You probably, it's kind of a more indie movie. It was mm-hmm. called Beta Test with uh, Jim Cummings. And I was like watching the guy and I'm like, I want to ask him, like, are you improvising this scene? Because it, seem, it seems so natural. I don't know to what takes more talent, improvising it or making it look like it was improvised because it seems so natural. Right. Well, I mean, it's, it's, this, it's, it's, it's really sort of the same thing. It's a, it's a, it's a, you put it brilliantly because you're not going to, if you, if you're doing Shakespeare or Chekhov or, you know, uh, a great uh, writer's work, you're not going to change a single word. You're not going to change a single word. And your job is to make it really truthful. Um, and, and then with some scripts, though, uh, you're not dealing with Chekhov. And a little nudge here and there can actually make the writer's work even more powerful. But you're mm-hmm. still, but still, even if you're using the dialogue, I think that the, the, the written dialogue, there's still the aesthetic of you're still improvising within those parameters. Mm-hmm. Li- you know, as Sanford Miser said, you're living truthfully under imaginary circumstances and, you know, what you do doesn't depend on you. It depends on the other person. So you're just in the in those circumstances, the given circumstances of the scene with yeah, the words are there for you. But if you're truly present, they're not going to come out. They're not going to sound like lines on a page. So when it's when acting is executed. <sighs> Well, it's, I mean, it's oftentimes, if especially on network television, you can see the lines on the page. You can see every moment is spelled out, right? It's very clear, um, and and that works for that genre. But that's not really what I, I tend to look for, and I think you know people really respond to. You wanted to see it happening in front of you. Yeah. So what is like with Bennett Miller, is yeah. he one of your favorite directors to to work with? Is he kind of encourages that improv improvisation? Yeah, he, I mean he was amazing. I mean I've worked with so many great directors and but yeah, that was a really exciting experience uh just because it's dangerous and and uh there's a certain level of difficulty which makes it exciting and fun. And but then ultimately you just feel really safe. It it creates a great environment. I mean because I always feel as I think about teaching acting or talking to younger actors, like lots of people can act. Acting's not, you know, everyone's, you you know, so many people are funny, you know, some people are smart who can pretend. The only thing that separates a professional actor from everyone else is they have to do it under honestly the worst circumstances and, and under pressure. So, Mm -hmm. and you know, I always think, you know, if I had one piece of advice that I would give an actor, it's like, whatever you think it's going to be like on the day, it's not. I mean, huh. down to, so you, I can't tell you how many times you think, oh, this is the most important scene. We're going to spend three hours on it. And they're like, okay, we can only do this in one take because we're losing the light. And you're like, you got to go, right? Or if you're playing a scene in the Bahamas, I guarantee you it's going to be 40 below where you are that day, <laughs> right? You know, so nothing is what you think. So you have to really be disciplined about knowing that it's not going to be like what you imagined in your head and you have to do it. You have to do your job under adverse circumstances, you know, hmm. people who maybe who, are, who don't want to be there or they, or they're going like, oh, we don't have time. We got to, we got to move on. We got to move on. Everyone's stressed or someone else is having a bad day. It's never going to be ideal. And then every once in a while, 
you just have this perfect experience where everything falls into place and it's it's an amazing playground to play in. Um, but those are truly the exceptions. Most of the time it's it's challenging, but that's also why it's done by professionals. And you're there, you know, I mean, I just did I just did, uh, I guess I can say this. I just did the Better Call Saul? I just did Better Call Saul. Yeah, tell me about this. What can well, you say? Anything. All I can say is it's one of the greatest uh, characters I've ever gotten to play. It was I couldn't wait to do it. But Is it more than one episode? I can't say anything. Um, and But all I can say is I did my first scene, and it was a big one, and um, we didn't get to it to my coverage. Now I, I, I'm talking for like six pages, just six pages of me talking, 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 talking. Didn't get to my close up until like, I'd been there, it came at five in the evening. I don't think we got to my close up till 7 a.m. the next morning. So I've been there, uh, you know, I've been there for 14 hours and, uh, and I've been talking for 14 hours and people around me are just falling asleep and you're going like, oh, but you have to pretend every time's the first time, right? That's the challenge of an actor. So that's, and you, you dig deep. All you want to do is go home and go to bed because you're just, you're wrecked, but you're like, it doesn't, this goes back to that Moneyball story when people are like, oh, you did a great job. I'm like, I haven't done it yet because until they film my face doing it, it hasn't, it doesn't exist. And, um, and you just gotta, you gotta dig deep, but it's not, it's, uh, I mean, people always go, how do you learn lines or how do you shoot it out of sequence? It's like, that's the easiest part, right? It's just, you're doing, I can't tell you how many times every, my wife, who's the, the best actor in the family, she's, she's the real professional, but she's just come out of retirement about two years ago and she's been working now constantly. And, but she, I told her and she'd hear my stories and, and she told me like how many times she's had to do her close up at like four o'clock in the morning. And you've been there for already for 12 hours. Right. And that's, you know, this isn't, look, we're not, we're not saving lives and, and uh, this is, <laughs> we're not firemen. Um, it's yeah. not, but I'm saying like, as far as uh, being a professional actor inside baseball, it's just, I think that's what the difference is. Is you have to do it when it's not ideal. Yeah. That's, well, that's I mean, weird. you're a, you're a David Goggins fan, right? So like, you David Goggins says, like your comfort zone is poison. So comfort, that's like a, that's a good thing, right? You're supposed to step out of your comfort zone, and that's oh, when yeah. all the magic happens. It is when all the magic happens. I mean, it's even like you know how you you asked earlier about like, do you go through periods where you're not working? And so, of course, and it's always because I have something to learn. There's something new you've got to do because you'll get into a rut too. Like so they'll see me as a lawyer. So I play lawyers for five years. And then like, if I want to not play a lawyer, I'm going to have to show them that I'm something else. And you got to put your big boy pants on and, and, you know, go out there and, and audition and fight for it. And, and I remember uh, a much smarter guy than me, who told me the Sisyphus myth. He goes, your problem is you get the rock to the top of the hill. And then you're like, Oh, you don't feel like pushing it back up again. And you're not, you have to remember you're always going to be pushing it back up. So as soon as you get your head out of your ass and you go push that rock up again, great things happen. And it's true. And it's mm-hmm. I, now, you know, talking about Goggins, it's exciting. You know, I'm 54 years old and I feel I have as much energy as I did when I more probably than when I was 20 because I'm still in it. You know, you're still fighting and, and it's exciting. And I, I really, I fell in love. I fell in love with acting all over again when I started improvising. And then, and then there was a period where I was doing a bunch of stuff and I wasn't as in love with it. And then I found my love for it, my passion for it again, like four years ago. And I've just been on this ride of doing all these great things since then. And like I, that's why I said, like, you really have to master yourself and your ego and thinking, 
where you should be and, oh, I should be here and I did this. Why do I have to? And the business changes, you know, people don't know who you are maybe and you got to prove yourself to them. And, and there's no, um, there's dignity in that. And there's, fuck, there's muscle, there's muscle to be built and you got to keep that muscle strong. Um, I, I, I have a friend who's a very, you know, profoundly successful businessman. And I was talking to him about this before I sort of like got back pushing the rock up the hill. And he's like, I never rest. I never feel like I've, I've arrived. And he goes, it's death. And, uh, and I was like, oh yeah, yeah. And because that's the ego. I was like, Hey, I've, I'm here. I've been on TV for a bunch of years. I've been on this show. I, why aren't you, you know, why isn't this being handed to me? And sometimes it is handed to you and that's great. But there's no, also just that one role. Yeah. You see that, like I, there's so many people like you that do all these roles. And then it's like, I remember William H. Macy yeah. had been acting for like, whatever, 14, <laughs> yeah. 15 years. And then he got, he, he got Fargo and he's like, I'm so glad I don't ever have to audition again. Like, and he, didn't. he was like, that was, he was made it at that yeah. point. Yeah. Well you go through, but that's the thing is like you go through periods and you get addicted to that because there was a whole period where like, I don't think I had to audition for like 10 years. Right. And cause things were coming, but then you're going, okay, the business changed. I'm older. I'm in a different category or they're, you know, they're looking for different types of people. And so you just have to go, all right. And there's something that feels really good when you you do fight for it and then you get it and you remember like, oh, I got that muscle because yeah. that's, that's what got me started in the beginning. Like I had, there was nothing that was going to be too challenging. I, I, I would right. say, yeah, you're just like, yeah, I'll, I'll go get those. I remember my first real, uh, not commercial job, but my first professional job after starting commercial, I did an after school special. And they wouldn't release the script, and there was no date rape. Is this the date rape? God bless you. You're hilarious. So they they wouldn't. There was no computers. There's no faxes, and they would. So if you if you wanted to read the scene that you were gonna have to audition for, you'd have to go there and get it. So I went there. I walked over there in the heat of the summer of New York, down to like the, it was somewhere on the Hudson River. I got my scenes. I I walked over to behind some warehouse and I learned it, and then I went in there and did it. And and I was like, you you were able to do that. You can still do that. You can still fight because you know, that's, that's who we're, that's who we are as humans. You know, there's no, there's no resting in the natural world. You know, wolves don't get a day oh. off. Right. You know, I think there's a big thing to be said for momentum. I learned that as uh, doing yeah. podcasts because I would get a big guest and right. I'd be like, okay, I deserve a break now. Like I just got to, and it's like, <laughs> right. but then it's like you kill the momentum and it's like, right. no, I need to keep going. I need to get the, the, the bigger guest after that. Yeah. No, that's it, yeah. I, I love that. I love that you're talking about this because I think that's it's really important because I, I think we're built for struggle, and it makes it keeps you stronger. It keeps you sharper. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, but I mean, trust me. There's there's moments where like I got to pay for school for my kid. Like you're, you're <laughs> like, but you know, you do. Yeah. Uh, and I've been I've been very 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 fortunate, and um, and that's also what makes it exciting. Is was there. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, was there ever any roles that you came close to that would have been life altering that you can talk about? Or was there any that you, that were big roles that maybe you turned down and then it turned into a big thing and you went shit. Well, there are auditions that I refused to go to back in the, when I was young and stupid that turned out, you know, to be star making roles for the person who did go. Um, oh, but, but you know, but I don't, they weren't my roles. They were their roles. Really? And I think that's the most. What, can you say what they were? I didn't want to audition for Noah, uh, Noah's part in ER. Um, Cause I thought the character uh, was wimpy. Uh, 
<laughs> uh, that was one famous word. I was like, oh, I could have been on ER. I could be like staying at one of my seven houses. Um, but no, no, but no, but but I think this is more important. And I, it's it's such it's so much fun talking to you. And like, uh, but I think this is the theme you talk about ego and who you are like you know a lot of actors get caught up and like oh i'm i'm better than that guy why did he get that part or like oh what's wrong i'm a really good actor it's like that's it's not it that's not what it's about like you have to be right and you have to be in the right place but you also have to be the right guy for or the person or you know you have to be the right person for the part and it's just when it's right it's right and that's what you know how you ask brilliantly at the beginning like what do you miss by not or lose out by not going into the room that's one of the things because that is very powerful where they can feel your essence and you're like yes that's the guy i can't tell you how many jobs when I, journeyman uh, a bunch of jobs i got it just walked through the door because the way that the molecules were exchanged between me and the creative people like he's the guy but um so now you know but no one's taken your part and it's a hard thing to remember because and yeah there's lots of really good actors out there. And yes, you can do that thing that, you know, we all do when we're young. Like I could play everything. Like, yeah, you can play everything, but you're not going to get cast and everything. It's a business, you know? Right. And that's, in fact, my, my number one piece of advice that I give to the younger uh, actors that I work with. I'm like, make your own stuff because you can. And mm -hmm. you know, that's, I, I'm probably too lazy and I, I should be doing more, but also like, I grew up in a different time or I came up in a different time. But now, like, I always say, like, I'm still defined by how people define me. I'm, I, I, I go from job to job. I'm a journeyman actor. I'm a working actor and I love it. But you could define who you are. You could show them who you are, you know, the way Joel Edgerton does, or, you know, there's so many great people out there who've created their own, you know, the, I mean, think about Fleabag, like Phoebe, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Like, look what she did. She was like, she's like, here's who I am. And now I'm a freaking you know i'm just i'm 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 a powerful and brilliant you know person in this business like so like lena you, dunham from girls like she's just like she didn't like lose a bunch of weight and like she's like oh, here i am yeah and she's, she's a great writer jesus oh I mean, my god yeah and that show yeah i mean look so that's it so you know you can you can wait for the phone to ring or you can you can create something. You've written some stuff, right? You've written some screenplays and some TV pilots. I have. I have. Wow, you are good. I <laughs> yeah, I wrote I've written some pilots and uh and I, I continue to write and, and, and I'm constantly developing other stuff, but it's like uh uh I mean I just I love acting and I've been I always say I've been cursed with moderate success. So I, I can't, <laughs> you know. <laughs> It kind of always works out. Uh, well, it's moderate. Like what? So, like with the agents of Shield, is that yeah. like a lifetime of of being able to go to Comic Con? Though, at least, I mean, you right? They, there's going to be people that worship you just from that show for the rest of your life, right? Oh yeah. I mean, I've been very fortunate to be in the Whedon verse and to be on, you know, in the Marvel verse. So that has definitely opened all that stuff up, and I love that. I mean, I, I certainly love, I uh, I love going to conventions and I love meeting fans, and that's been that's a fun perk, but. You know why wouldn't you want to spend? I, I, there's I I do one the Star Fury events, Star Fury events in England. I've gone over in there and done those a couple of times, and those are the best because you get to spend like a whole weekend there with hmm. you know, a bunch of other people you know from other Whedon shows or other you know Marvel shows, and then you're partying in Blackpool and you're you're with sort of this picked group of of fans who've paid to be there and so but what, what could be better than hang out with a bunch of people who think you're cool and 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 <laughs> uh and you know, want to hear your dumb stories so yeah and, you know so i love all that but yeah no i mean 
I'm I'm doing I'm doing great. And, I'm, and I've, I've been really lucky to be super busy during COVID. And but like I was saying, my manager was she called me the other day and she was like, you know, what's so exciting about this business and what I've always loved about it. And she's amazing. She's a woman named Stacey Abrams really just changed my life. And she's she's like, what's exciting is you never know. You never know what's coming next. And that is that's the beauty and the terror of it. But it keeps you alive. Right. And mm-hmm. and. And I never know, and I never, you can't predict what show is going to be an amazing experience, what shows not. And that's, it's, it, like I say, it keeps you vital. It's, it's, it keeps you on your toes and it's exciting. I mean, I can't tell you how many times we're going, this is it. This show, this show is going to change the world. I remember we're making Memphis Bell. And I, I remember guys on the show were picking out their Oscar tuxes, right? Like we're getting Oscars <laughs> for this thing, right? And you just never know. And then you do something yeah. and then boom, it just connects but it's so what do you think your most underrated show or movie that you did like that you wish more people had seen <laughs> i know you said journeyman was one of them that was the most fun is that one or would you pick a different one i think you know it's journeyman was oh uh, that was one of those that was one of those where we wish it ran for 10 years that was because the group that was assembled was just it was one of, from the top down uh, kevin falls who created the show and i've done three or four other shows with kevin since then franklin and bash and minority report he was and that was one of those where i literally I, they've been cast they've been pilot season casting for my part for weeks and i walked in at the near the end and he said he said the second you walk through the door i knew you were the guy and mm-hmm. and we've been connected ever since then but journeyman was such an amazing thing because kevin mckid who played the lead who played we played brothers i had been obsessed my wife and i had been obsessed with rome we'd been watching it for like two years before and every time we'd watch rome my wife would say to me she goes you have to play kevin mckid's brother (laughs) she's like you look like brothers and so i remember when i got the audition like it's to play kevin mckid's brother i'm like well i'm getting this one but it was it was a lot but it was uh, that was one of those where everyone from the top down everyone involved in the production was just wonderful. And, mm-hmm. and it's funny because uh, in the old days, productions tended to be a lot more problematic. There wasn't, um, and there was a lot of bad behavior that was encouraged and a lot of bad behavior that, that you were allowed to get away with back in the day, because there was no social media. There was, uh, there was the, the networks, the studios weren't as hands-on. Um, and then as the business model changed, a lot of the bad behavior went away, but um, that was, I realized that you want to be working with people you want to be with, you know, cause you're, especially yeah. when you're doing a TV show, you gotta be, you're there 14 hours a day. Right. But that was a journeyman really changed it. Cause we were just all so in love with each other and we were just having the best time. And it was just one of those things with a writer's strike and, and NBC wasn't completely behind it at the time. And, and there were some regime changes and it just didn't, it didn't click, but we we still every every year we all text each other on the day that it premiered on the anniversary. We're like, oh my god, what if it was still going? Remember? But you know those you, you never know. But I mean, it's not really for me to say what should have been more lauded. I mean, I've always been amazed. I feel very lucky that I got to be part of Homicide, right? Because that was sort of that was the end of a certain era. You, know, you talked about the three networks and the time you know, Fox was coming in with X-Files. So there's four at the time, but people were still trying because they were trying to make prestige TV on networks. Right. And now then right after that HBO kicked in and then the streamers and all that and basic cable mm-hmm. and, and the landscape really changed. But homicide was, we were trying to make a HBO show, which they eventually did make the next iteration, the wire on HBO, trying to make that on a network. And 
You know, it's funny too, because we were always on the bubble of getting canceled because we were only getting like 18 million viewers on a Friday night at 10, right? 18, 19 million. Yeah. Look, mad, you know, what what the Mad Men finale gets 2 million, right? So it's just like, it's just, it's the numbers of crazy, right? It's a different world. But I was always, it was, there was, it, it, it never, not for me personally, but I always wanted that show to get nominated for, it never got nominated for best drama. Hmm. You know, it was, and so I feel for them, I feel like they should have gotten it, but I, I'm not really think that there's anything that I was on that should have been recognized further. I've been really lucky. And I think Wayward Pines was pretty good. I feel like, yeah. but I think like what happened was they, they, the second season, it kind of fell apart, but that first season that you were, I think you were in the first season, right? Yeah. Yeah. That first season was, it was, I mean, it was so good. It was like an old twilight zone really oh, just yeah. so intriguing and then i think they just like well like well how, where can we go with this now like it's already kind of been revealed at the end and <laughs> well i think on that one too if you read the books you should do yourself a treat oh there's and, books okay. oh yeah so blake crouch who wrote it because i remember reading the pilot um and i go i'm so into it the pilot was amazing for wayward pines and i go yeah well i guess i'll find out what happens when i get the job and then i thought oh shit I'm, I, I don't know if i'm gonna get this job so i immediately downloaded his book and i didn't even get out of my chair I sat in my chair and in three hours i read the whole really? book and it was it was amazing but that show interestingly enough that was the most problematic show that i've been on in modern times and if you notice the reason the second season is so different from the first season is they killed everyone off and uh yeah i I think that was intentional okay Uh, yeah so we could start fresh um yes so i mean that's just my you know it's my outside opinion i was very happy when i got the script that i was being killed um and uh because not okay. always you're not always excited about that um yeah because and that's the you know that's the uh that's the career uh downside to playing bad guys is when yeah you're a bad guy for sure you know you're not surviving right um, okay. um that's why i got very excited on designated survivor um when i realized oh i'm a good guy on this show um and then they killed me blew me up in a okay. nuclear nuclear explosion in a subway station <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I got to ask this though. Yeah, man. So you brought up Franklin and Bash, uh, Mark Paul Gossler, huge, yeah. huge save by the Bell fan. How close is he in real life to the Zach Morris character? Is that like a stretch for him to play that? Or is he like basically Zach Morris in real life? I'm going to, you're going to kill me. I've never seen Saved by the Bell. I have no idea. What? what I have no idea what Zach Morris is like. Really? Um, I do wow. know. You got yeah. some homework to do. I guess so, man. That was the nineties, man. I'm, 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 I'm in my twenties. I'm not watching. Yeah, that'd Saved be a little creepy, Bell. I guess, if you're watching that show in your twenties. <laughs> but, but all I could say is he, he was amazing. He and Brecken were amazing. Franklin yeah. Bash was another one of those because Kevin Falls created that show and Bill Chase with him. And I mean, for me, that one, it was all about getting to work with Malcolm McDowell too. I mean, that's the magic. Oh yeah. It's, that's the of magic course. of this business is you get to meet so many incredible, extraordinary people and heroes. Did you I get mean, to work with John Lithgow when you were on Memphis Belks? I know he was in that, but oh, yeah. dude, that, that's a guy that I would just like spy on and go try to figure his technique. Cause he is so brilliant at oh, dramatic yeah. and comedic acting. That's really hard to do. Oh yeah. He's, he's freaking powerhouse i love like oh my god i love him i mean his churchill talk, talking about the crown was just it was transcendent i love that guy now yeah. and they're all and they're all great guys i mean I'm, I'm, it's funny because the worst thing i always say the worst thing that ever happened to being on set was these things was your phone 
And because what ended up happening, the best part about actors, uh, you know, and being on set in between takes is people tell stories and actors always have the best stories. Right. And, um, but at least Malcolm, uh, he didn't disappoint. So on Franklin and Bash, he would just tell me, and I would just pepper him with questions. I just wanted to know, and he's had such an incredible career and he would just tell me all of his, you know, it's just, is, Did he have any his, Kubrick stories? Of course, all he had tons of Kubrick stories, and all of the horrible like because he was part of that whole group of all the crazy British actors. He's telling terrifying Oliver Reed drunken stories and all those things that I just love. My favorite part, uh, one of my favorite days on Franklin and Bash was John Landis directed. Oh yeah, from yeah Animal so John, House and uh, Animal House, so many, American Blues, Werewolf, Blues uh, Brothers, all that stuff. Yeah, and directed the Thriller video. So yeah. I literally, I'm standing there, and I've got John Landis here, and I've got Malcolm here, and they're just trading off stories. I mean, just topping each other. I mean, John Landis tells some outrageous story about Michael Jackson being trying, you know, Madonna trying to seduce Michael Jackson, and then you know he'll top it with another one. And I'm just like, oh, please don't let this stop because wow. that's that's what you love. I mean, one of my fondest um, memories ever. I did an early TV movie. I did I did with the great Joanne Woodward. And Joanne Woodward happened to be married to this um, a little icon called Paul Newman. And we're shooting in Pittsburgh. It's Laura Linney. It's me. It's Joanne. And Paul, we're, it's a Sunday afternoon. And we're just going to have a beer at some restaurant somewhere in Pittsburgh. I don't know where, and, and he just starts telling the most wonderful stories. Like he's, and they were all, which is also great, you know, with really, uh, I mean, he, I think he's one of the greatest actors of, of all time, but every story was about how bad he was in this play or that play, <laughs> how he messed up. And you just love it. Cause you're like, what? you're the greatest. Oh, you're you saying he sucks. Well, that's of course. And that's why you love him more because he's self-effacing just like, you know, so, <laughs> so is Clooney. So is Brad Pitt. That's like the, the best. Really? The Clooney tells stories about sucking. That's all he tells. Story. He tells about like tr- getting fired off of Roseanne and oh yes, no, <laughs> it did happen, or, yeah. or fit, you know, yeah, because that's what you want. You want your icons to. You don't uh, want, see, and that's what's so funny because when people start bragging about, and I'm like, the people that are really successful, they don't brag like that. Like no. it's like you're compensating for something when you do that. Of course, that's exactly what you're doing. You're totally compensating, and you know when you're. I remember, I mean, my George Clooney, he directed me in this movie, Good Night and Good Luck. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I hadn't met him. I just auditioned and he'd seen my tape and I get cast. And now I'm on the CBS Radford lot on, in, in the Valley in Los Angeles. And he sees me and he just comes up to me and he's like, Reed. And he grabs me in this beer, big bear hug. He's fucking George Clooney. And he goes, I'm so, <laughs> and, he, and he goes, I'm so glad you're doing this movie. And I was just like, <gasps> I mean, and I was like, I would have done it. I would have jumped on a grenade for him at that moment. (laughs) And that's, that's, he understood, like what he was, I mean, he was one of the great, I'm talking about great directors. He was hands down one of the greatest directors I ever worked with, but he understood that he was George Clooney. He understood that I was probably going to be nervous to meet him, nervous to work with him. And he immediately diffused it. That's amazing. It's amazing. I love stories like that. Yeah, no, he's a, well, so cool. I mean, like I tell you, Brad Pitt brings in a rewritten scene and I've been with actors who've rewritten a scene and like, no, he's giving me more stuff. That dude never left the set. He's eating the sandwiches that are getting handed around like to the entire crew. <laughs> like, that's a- what I was going to ask you. So he didn't have a stand-in. He like stood. He did the lines with you, and it was your turn to have the camera on you or whatever. Of course, he's the ultimate mensch, and we were just improvising together. And, and literally, I remember just only because it, it, it's so it, it, it was so empowering, and he's just such a super awesome dude. 
I, I remember we were, we we're talking about something. He's like, I like Reed's idea. Reed's idea is better. Let's go with Reed's idea. And I'm really like, this is no ego, right? Just wants to make the scene great. And, and obviously uh, the most successful people I've ever met, jo- Joanne Woodward did the same thing to me that Clooney did. Cause when I met her, I'm, I'm a young actor. It's probably my third job. I'm coming off of a overnight plane because I've shot something in Toronto and I'm landing in Pittsburgh and I come to the first read through and she's like, read. She said the same thing. She goes, I'm so glad you're doing this. And I'm like, you are? Oh, thank God. Like immediately, you know, you feel comfortable. And she understands she's an icon. I mean, she's one of the greatest actors of all time. And that's, you need to know your place and you need to know too, you know, we talked about earlier that acting you have to do it under very difficult circumstances, but you don't have to make them more difficult. And smart people really know how to make people comfortable. I think about this all the time. And certainly whenever I've been a regular on a show, I mean, any guest star comes in, you go out of your way to make sure like they know that they're welcome there. And then we're like, Oh, we're so glad you're here. I mean, I, 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 I use those lines. I say, I'm so glad you're here. It's going to be great. We're so excited, you know, blah, 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 blah. Because it's, as Charles Durning said, you know, I was worried, you know, if you were going to think I was any good, I was worried if you were going to like me, he even said. Right. And that's, hmm. that's part of it. He, he said the sweetest thing and Charles Durning, which makes this story so fun. He goes, he goes, you know, the actor, it's like our, he, instead of saying the heart of Rhinoceros, heart of Rose, he goes, it's like we're a little bird inside of like a little wooden, your heart is like a bird inside of a little wooden bird cage. And it's very fragile and you have to be careful. And this is a guy, this is a war hero. This man landed on D-Day fought in the Battle of the Bulge, was severely wounded three times, machine gunned, but bayoneted, and I believe he had his throat slit and was returned to Jesus. and returned to combat after each of those injuries. You know, those are those are those those are those golden ticket injuries that usually get you out of the combat zone. And this man is like, I was hope I was wondering if you guys were gonna think I was any good. And you're like, wow. That's, you know, that's it's. We need some more people like that, right? In, in the world today, right now. Jeez, I know, right? Well, that's it, right? A man's it's, man, a man's man, a man's man. What was you know? Looks like there's a few men, men out there. Uh, uh, but yeah, no, it's and that's what it takes. Like it's it's as you said. Like if you're if you're talking about yourself and it's all about ego, you're overcompensating for something. Yeah, because those are the worst actors. Those are and those are those are fun stories. They're always fun stories. I mean. The people who, because I, I, there's two types of actors. There's the one like that improv thing, like we're all going to rise together, right? The better I make you, um, the better I am for you. The better you're going to be, and the better I'm going to be. You know, I, right. I come from I come from that ethos, that theater ethos. Like I always use a soccer metaphor. I go, the assist is even better than the goal, right? If you can put the ball where that guy needs to get it into the net how amazing is that you set him up to like to win and and i believe in that but then every once in a while and it's much less and less but when i was much younger especially you'd work with actors who were like oh the way i'm going to be better in this scene is by making you worse and and those are fun stories they're fun to talk <laughs> over about you try to kind of be like a jerk for a while and then you're like yeah this isn't me <laughs> Well, this is it. So I, you know, I, I just am this, right? Like I'm happy. I'm a I'm a team player, but I, I showed up on that homicide set and it was pretty rough going. And at the time I was, I counted myself to be a bit of a methody actor. So I go, okay, this is what it'd be like if I was the young cop, if I was the new cop, I'm going to be getting shit from tons of people. But, um, but there were some pretty intense personalities and there was some, pre- I mean, there was one scene where I remember both the other actors just stormed off and went to their trailers. Cause I'd said to the director, the director said to me, he said, Hey, cause they, they'd always pick me out the new directors. Cause they'd get all these guys who were independent filmmakers and they'd give them sort of their first TV gig. And so everyone would sort of, all these new directors want to pick, 
me to talk to at lunch before they start their episode because I seem like the most sort of open, cheerful guy. And and they go, do you have any advice for directing TV? And I was like, well, when actor X and actor Y are on set, just don't tell them what to do. Ask them what they want to do. <laughs> I remember cut to the next on Monday morning. He's like, I want you to come in here and I want you to come in here. And they're like, boom, boom, both gone. Right. They're just they're <laughs> out of there. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. oh, there was an actor that um, because on Homicide, I won't name any names, but these stories are still just as good. So the beauty of Homicide was it was all I can do the math. Yeah, probably. <laughs> and, uh, the, the camera was all handheld, right? So, uh, and it was literally handheld. It was a handheld camera, 16 millimeter. Yeah. Um, so the beauty of that, and Clark talks about this all the time. Clark Johnson, who played my partner, one of the greatest directors of all time. Amazing guy, amazing actor, amazing human. He's, you know, what was great about that is everyone had to stay in the scene. There was no, you couldn't go out of the scene. You had to back to what we're talking about, that aesthetic of really being present in the moment and playing off the other person because you never knew when the camera was going to find you. The other thing that happened on that, because of that, there was no traditional coverage. And by that, I mean, we're not going to do a master, a two shot, and you're single. You're not going to get your, your close up. So one actor definitely wanted his close-ups. So he had two tricks that he would do, which were great. They're great. I mean, I love horrible, uh, mean actor stories, but his, his <laughs> favorite one was he, he had two tricks. He would either not know his lines. So during the scene, he would never know his lines. So you couldn't use his coverage. But then suddenly they go, okay, well, we got to get your lines. So they go into a single and then he'd know them all perfectly. He know, right? So that was genius. And then the Smart. other thing was, because we'd shoot a lot of scenes in the interrogation room in the box, he would go to the window and look out the window and deliver half of his lines out the window. So then, of course, they'd have to come to the other side of the window and just give him a nice little close up. So those, I mean, it's very, it's very, I mean, I'm, I always admire it. I, I, I admire the, um, I admire the game, you know. Hmm. Um, or, or no, that's not the game, right? Right, you uh, don't hate the player, hate the game. So I, yeah. I admire the, I admire the players. I, I, I don't hate the game. Uh, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I yeah, hate yeah. The game. I, I don't hate the player. I'm fascinated. Yeah. But, but to your question, yes. So I was like around all of these pretty intense personalities, and there was a lot of strum and drong and behind the scenes machinations. And I was like, I'm gonna be a dick, and I'm gonna try that on, and it just failed miserably. I just wasn't any good at it because it's not your nature. And, yeah. and I really, I truly believe like the essence of this is being who you are. And you, and that was a, that was an important sort of um, uh, evolution for me in my growth as a man, as a human, I was like, no, you just gotta be who you are. You're a nice guy and you like to get along and sometimes it's not gonna be like that. And then after I sort of made that change, then I came back and I made all these amazing friends, these improv comedian who were just the sweetest, nicest people in the world. And then I had only pretty much great experiences since then, except for like wayward pines was like being thrown back into that fire. It was like a full homicide bananas thing. I remember, um, I remember one of the actors had like a three page monologue to do and really nice, really interesting cat. Uh, and he just went into his trailer and just, you know, just did a couple of massive bong hits and then came out and decided and decided. And they we were on location. We had hundreds of acres, hundreds of acres. We had hundreds of extras and, uh, and then decided he wasn't going to do that three page monologue. He was just going to sing a song instead. And I loved it as like a, as a person who's in the moment, I was like, this is great. It's fucking genius. It kind of works, but like, this isn't the, this isn't the script. And, uh, um, and that was just, that was, that was the nicest of those crazy experiences. But did the, you know, wait, did the song make the cut of the, the final thing or did you have to, I don't, I don't think so. I don't even know if this, I mean, I, could, I couldn't even watch the show because oh, it, was really? a, it was a little cray cray, but I mean, but that was one of those where I realized, oh, there's a lot going on here that I, 
I'm not up to this. And there's, they're much better at it. Um, um, I talked to an actor. It was my favorite line ever. I was talking about my kid. And this actor said, my career is my baby. And I thought, oh, there you go. There you go. I can't compete with that. Like my baby's my baby and my career. <laughs> I, like, I go, you win. You win. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but those, but they make fun stories. I mean, but I, yeah. now, now I tend to have many, I mostly only have delightful and wonderful experiences. Well, that's and, great. Yeah. Well, awesome. Jeez. We're almost oh over God. an hour and a half. So sorry to take up so much of your time, but this has been a blast. No, Chuck, this is a, dude, it's such a blast. You're, you're, such, you're so much fun to talk to. And, and I really love your show. And I was just watching the, the Nuge. Uh, oh yeah oh that was a, that guy's wild i love that guy i, mean, he's, I, do too. He, <laughs> I don't know you don't why, even need to I, be I, there right he could just talk the yeah. whole time he's fantastic yeah. i don't have to do anything yeah he's i for some reason he's, i find him fascinating but um i always end with a charity is there a charity oh. you want to promote here well you know i've been for a long time i've been uh, a supporter of japaigo I don't know if you're familiar with Japaigo. It, no. uh, it's uh, women's health and reproductive rights and um, and frontline healthcare workers in Africa, and that's oh, wow. okay. That's that's a really but it's funny. I was thinking about it, and so I've I've, I've worked with Japaigo for years, and I, they do amazing work, um, empowering women and with their reproductive rights and with their uh, care and and and. and, they, and so when you said the Africa thing. Does it does it does that have something to do with the, uh, the what is it they call that like the female circumcision stuff? Are they trying to fight? Because that's like a really weird thing to me. You well, know, you're really, aware of that? That well, I'm very, I'm very aware of that. Um, but I, 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 you know, their main thrust is to reduce infant mortality, and you know, and so many mothers still in okay. in 2022 are dying in childbirth. So they're dealing uh. with that. But it, you know, thinking about that, it's interesting. Uh, I was thinking about you said, you know, you said you 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 mentioned a charity at the end, and I I, I realized I spent the last year driving across the United States. Because we got during lockdown, the first year I was working when I was doing leverage and doing Bosch, I got separated from my family because my family's here in Canada and you know, I was working in the States. So I couldn't come home because there was no vaccine uh, and it was a two week quarantine. Yeah. And so then this year, uh, when I got my first job shooting Girl in the Woods out in Portland, we drove there and then we went from job to job and we drove all around the country. And since then, I've driven mostly all around Canada. And I definitely want to get started with a charity if i have to bring in my own i know there, there's ones that exist but the amount of food deserts that we see in this country i mean you're thinking like food deserts and clean drinking water i mean there's two things that are going on right now that are blowing my mind you know we're still flint still got doesn't have clean water right really and, they still don't they didn't fix and, it and and you can't imagine how many communities you can go into right now where no one's got access to anything but fast food and, you That's know, I true. know, I know Wendell Pierce has done amazing things with the food deserts, but I'm just spitballing. But I, I realize it's a cause. It's dear to my heart because, I mean, nutrition is everything. How you eat, you know, is how you develop. And it's it, in fact, it you know, affects your mood and how you, you live in the world. And, and the fact that you don't even have access mm -hmm. to anything for miles around or That's hundreds of miles around. That's healthy. Yeah. So, uh, but Japago and, uh, and then stand ready for my food desert okay. charity that I'll be doing. Yeah, let me know when that yeah, hits. Yeah. That, that's a great idea. I yeah. love that. I always wonder that too, because we do a lot of driving around road trips and I'll be driving yeah. to this town. I'm like, how do they get groceries? Like, I know there's a family dollar, but I don't think family dollar has like full on groceries. Like they have like packs of hot dogs and TV dinners. Like, exactly. I don't know. I always wondered that. I mean, I don't know. It's, yeah. One of those things, hopefully you can fix. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, we, uh, we, we all need, you know, there's uh, we gotta, we gotta take care of the people here. Come on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks Dude. so much, Reed. This has been a blast. I had a lot Chuck. of fun. 
absolute blast. And thank you so much for inviting me on. And I love talking to you. And uh, I look forward to doing it again. Okay. Yeah. You'll come back when you're, uh, the Better Call Saul comes out. That'll be fun. All right, brother. Sounds good. Okay. Sounds All right, good. Have a great See day. You. All right. Cheers. See you. Bye-bye. Wow. What, that was a lot of fun. And uh, sometimes you just click with a guest and it's like you're talking to an old friend rather than a guy that you just met. And I definitely felt that way with Reed. I enjoyed our conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed listening. Thank you to Reed for taking the time. Shout out to Steve Cooper from Cooper Talk for helping set that one up. Make sure to follow all three of us on social media to keep keep up with all the fun stuff that we're doing. And look out for Reed's new show, Gaslit, with Sean Penn and Julia Roberts. And also catch him on Better Call Saul, although he can't tell me which part he's playing or how many episodes. But you know I'm going to watch the whole season anyway, so... If you want to support my show, your likes, shares, and comments go a long way. Uh, And please make sure to subscribe wherever you watch or listen. And if you want to go that extra mile, you can always write me a review on Apple Podcasts or rate me on Spotify or wherever you listen. Uh, Thank you again for all your support. Have a great rest of your day. And remember to shoot for the moon. 